is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi, and welcome to Fuse and Focus. I'm Rebecca, and today I'm joined by Jess. Hiya. Luke. Hiya. Alex. Hello. Fiona. Hi. And Madeline. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about China's QR code travel system, Priti Patel's history of bullying, the latest on Nigel Farage's politics, the racial profiling incident at the University of Manchester, the occupation of Owens Park's tower, and the university's well-being approach on Instagram, followed up by a quick bit on the Pope's social media hiccup. First up, we have Jess with our international story. So this story is about China pushing for more surveillance on individuals during the COVID-19 pandemic. And currently they are wanting to enforce personalized QR codes for their global travel system. And these QR codes can be read by mobile phones and are issued using a traffic light style code. So if yours was green, you can travel freely, but orange or red would indicate that you needed to quarantine for up to two weeks. And the hope is that this will establish a traveler's health status, but there has been some debate as to how the codes could be used for like broader and political monitoring. And already during the pandemic, China has been using really advanced technology to monitor individuals. This has been like robots delivering food in hospitals if they're like, in quarantine to kind of protect NHS staff or uh, medical staff as well in China. And then surveillance and facial recognition software, which can actually take temperatures in the street or in shopping centers and then also drones enforcing lockdowns and quarantines. And also in China, everyone has a national ID card, which is used for basically everything. So this can be like public transport, buying a smartphone, and even using specific apps. And this means that there's actually like a personalized data trail for every single user. And these new QR codes are kind of emphasizing this tracing system. And it plans to make a permanent version of this QR code based software and it could be used to assign citizens like a personal score based on their medical history and then have their health checkups and lifestyle habits to kind of create this really specific personalized data trail all about the one user. But I think what the debate around this is, is that it could become a Trojan horse for broader political monitoring and exclusion. So already these new advancements in surveillance are being trialed in Singapore, Iran, Taiwan, Israel and Russia. And they're all kind of copying these various methods used in China to increase data collection in the pandemic, which essentially what we've got like track and trace. And in Singapore and Australia, they're using the contact tracing for residents to check into in and out of places they visit, like shopping centers, restaurants, and like places of work. But in the UK, like comparing that, we've had track and trace, but we've kind of seen it not being 100% accurate. There's been quite a lot of debate on that in the UK. And it's, it's been seen in the past, like before the pandemic, where powers and heads of states have acquired this new surveillance software, um, especially after 9-11, where America um, really increased their surveillance, hoping it would end kind of after 9-11, just to kind of increase security. But this is still carrying on. So I think the question here is whether now the government, our government, have had new powers with the track and trace software, and also China are increasing their uh, powers to collect data, other countries are copying and I think the debate here is like, should a crisis situation increase government powers of surveillance and data collection on people, or should it be used in the moment and then end afterwards to give public more personal freedom? Well, I think there's an ethical blurred line then there because when do they lose access to that data? They don't necessarily, and there isn't necessarily transparency as to how they're using that data. And I think in the case of China, it's particularly suspicious because they did pilot a social uh, credit system, point system last year. 
um, where they kind of try to assess and rank people's social and economic standing. So I think compiling data in this sense seems to kind of mirror that. Um, and I think it could be abused in the future. Yeah, I'd completely agree with that. I think that is the problem with creating all these new technologies is that it's so much easier to um, create these powers and give them out than to take them away. You can't uninvent something or, or take something back. Um, and I think that is the issue with uh, most of these things. Obviously, we've had track and trace in England, which hasn't really worked that well. But I think that obviously there's been a lot of talk about that, about how well our data is being handled and who's being able to see that. And I think that's the issue with all of these apps at the moment is um, we whether we have advanced enough technology to be able to protect all of these details. Yeah, for me, it just seems like China are enjoying playing up to the stereotype of being the creepy spying nation on the people. Um, I think there's a lot to be said how they, they've handled it, though. Um, they're almost back to normal life, even though everyone's being watched like 1984. Um, but compared to the UK, um, they've got a lot of liberties that we haven't right now. So maybe taking some of the liberties away that we have, i.e. freedom of expression, might enable us to play football again. Uh, it's not a direct swap, but yeah, something to think about. I mean, yeah, Alex, you just mentioned there about how uh, how there is a return to normal life in China. Uh, there is this big conspiracy that's going around, especially in Western countries uh, like the UK and the US, especially with Donald Trump is what, what Donald Trump is, is saying. Um, is that how much can we believe the Chinese government when they say that cases are on the decrease um, and that things are returning back to normal uh, and there's no risk of a, a virus um, creating problems like it did? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, well, I think we you're absolutely right there. Yeah, we have to take what China say with, with a pinch of salt, um, especially, you know, it's very easy for us to say that from, from Western nations. So, yeah, I, but I, I think that the the idea the the idea behind this initiative um, would would be would be a good idea, and especially if we can try and achieve do something like that in the UK, then it would be quite beneficial, as as you mentioned, um, Fiona. I think you mentioned about track and trace and the problems that it's causing for people at the moment. So, uh, yeah, something like this would be really beneficial. But there is obviously the trade off between personal data. There could also be a cultural difference in how people here would respond to a system like that, because we're already seeing a lot of crazy conspiracies um, coming out about being vaccinated and about the government potentially putting chips, microchips into you if you get the vaccine. Um, and people just seem a lot less inclined to kind of conform to a government, um, I don't know, appeal. Same with wearing masks, which was a non-issue in China and some other countries. I think linked to like government control and things in our country, especially we were told to go into lockdown. So we all stay in lockdown. Then you had members of the government telling us to go into lockdown, breaking those rules. So I think for us, it's kind of like disillusionment between trusting what the government's saying and that leading to these conspiracy theories, because why should we trust them when they've been shown to break promises, break their own rules? Um, I think that's where there's that trust element between why, why wouldn't they collect our data when they had this opportunity to? because they can do whatever they want with that and it could be really valuable. I mean, the whole vaccination uh, microchip data might be a bit sus. I don't think uh, Boris Johnson really cares what I buy in Tesco, um, but there are definitely some people that might want to be a bit more paranoid. Yeah, it's, it's just 
it's a fine line. It's a fine line. But I think it's exactly, I guess the worry would be centred around um, what we've already seen in the last few years with the elections in the US and the referendum here and the um, personal data that companies have collected just around Facebook and social media and how governments have used that to um, to alter elections and the referendum. And I think that would be the main worry with um, the amount of personal data that you could collect on an app or a, with a QR code like this. It definitely feels very dystopian and almost, it does feel like a Black Mirror episode. And I think even without such a clear cut system to monitor people, they do, I mean, big corporations do have so much data on us, um, which obviously could be shared with the government or with other corporations. And it is something we kind of inadvertently sell to these companies. Um, and with a QR code based system, it would just be a lot more explicit, a lot more information. And I don't know how comfortable people would be um, selling themselves like that. I mean, we're already using the QR systems for track and trace as well. Like going to the library, we have to scan to go in. Um, so we have started this kind of culture in the UK, but I think in China, it's 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 not the first step. It's an it's an, it's an increase in what they've already got in the surveillance. It's it's more. Whereas for us, I think it's kind of a new thing for us to be sending data to someone. We don't really know what's happening with it, but we know potentially it could help people because it's alerting them that you've been there, you may have had symptoms. I think there's not that history of data protection laws for our country. So we're kind of maybe more susceptible to falling for it. I'm not too sure where we stand on that. I think the main thing here as well is the transparency. See, if we were told what's going to happen to our data, I think that would be, it'll make a lot more people comfortable in giving their data away. So it, knowing that it's not being sold to spy agencies all across the world would definitely make some more suspicious folk in this world be a bit more relaxed. I don't know, because I think if you're an innately suspicious person, the government's word wouldn't be enough. I think they wouldn't necessarily trust empty promises like that. Um, but it's hard to know how everyone thinks about this sort of thing um, and how paranoid the general person is. You see the paranoia though in really small things like when you get a targeted advert on Instagram or Facebook and you're like I was literally just talking about that to a friend I've never googled it before and it's just come up um so I think we are starting to become a bit more paranoid as to who actually has our data and what's actually going to be happening with it because it is just used for selling tactics and you can turn off um like targeted adverts but then it also is kind of useful in some parts you're like oh I actually was looking for that but then it is a bit creepy it is like this imposition on what's happening in your life like are things like the Google Home and like Alexa things always listening to you. I think that, I think the issues of data privacy and like what you're thinking going to these big corporations is becoming a bit more, it's coming to the forefront of our debates and conversations about our, our own lives really. We don't even realize how much information there is on us. Um, you can actually go to your Google dashboard, which gives you a summary of all the data Google has on you. And I looked at it once and it was terrifying because I didn't even realize that my Google Maps, like the location was always on. So they knew my every step, where I'd been at what time, how I got there, whether I'd cycled, which bus I had taken. Um, and then obviously if you have cards linked to your phone, any purchase, it just all comes back down to this one personalized data set. Yeah, I don't know if any of you have seen the, um, the film about uh, Dominic Cummings. It's called Brexit Beyond Civil War. Benedict Cumberbatch plays Dominic Cummings. And there's a scene in that where um, he's like talking to a, I think it's a Facebook guy 
and uh, the guys just like um facebook can work out when you're like in a really bad relationship with someone before you even like acknowledge it and stuff like that that they they're able to kind of guess your emotions and guess your thoughts before you actually even consider thinking about that sort of thing um and that's really really dangerous especially for for political ends um and things and you know and public discourse is really it's quite quite scary really yeah i think we're now entering the age of uh trying to outsmart the computer i mean if you don't want to be tracked you've just got to act like a criminal now and just leave your phone wherever it was before don't use any cards go back to cash yeah it's, it's going to be a difficult time so would people ever consider having that trade-off and having a more strictly monitored QR code system? So maybe even the NHS track and, track and trace system, but more rigorous um, in order to have more social freedom? Or would you rather stay off the grid as much as possible and sacrifice some of your freedoms? It's a tough one, isn't it? Because it's, it is just that you can be as suspicious as you want as of... Um, China and this QR code and the NHS track and trace app, but exactly like you say, they have everything we're doing anyway on like Google and Amazon and it's a bit, you can get a bit existential with it, but I'm not sure there's much you can do to push against it now. I wouldn't mind the trade-off personally. Um, if, it, if it helps us with stuff like track and trace, if it helps us try and fight the virus um, and kind of help people like self-isolate and stuff, I think it's worth having that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a fine line between that and, and your civil liberties just being completely eroded. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I, I mean, with, with stuff like the, with the virus and track and trace and stuff, I have no problem with it. Um, I don't think the majority of the population have a problem with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fine line. I think it's quite a difficult question to answer. Well, speaking of mistrust against the government, the latest news on Priti Patel has created more distrust against the Tory government. Uh, Sir Alex Allen was the Prime Minister's independent advisor on ministerial standards until he resigned this month, which follows an inquiry by the Cabinet Office into allegations of Priti Patel's workplace bullying, which established that she had in fact broken the ministerial code, which is a set of rules on professional conduct for government ministers, and she is said to have treated civil servants poorly, not just in her current home office environment, but at the Department for Work and Pensions and the Department for International Development, which were her previous departments. Um, and we don't know the extent of the accusations because the results of the investigation have not been published, but we do know that Boris Johnson has tried to tone down the report and undermined the investigation while it was ongoing by saying that he would continue to support her. Um, and the PM is continuing to support her even now, justifying her actions with the claim that she was unaware of the effects they had on her colleagues. I personally think workplace ethics should not be a partisan issue and that this shouldn't be up for debate or defended by the prime minister because workplace bullying should be a resigning matter. Uh, creating a toxic or intimidating workplace environment can have harmful effects to employees' mental health. So I think by dismissing this investigation, Boris is undermining the government's ethical integrity as well as the ministerial code. So he's almost rendered the code meaningless and asserted himself as the sole arbiter of the rules, which he can interpret as he sees fit. What does everyone else think about the accusations against Patel and how do you think she and the PM should have handled it? I mean, she's doing a very, very good job of making her look like one of the nastiest people in Britain. 
at a time when it's Britain is full of nasty people. Um, I don't know whether she's had many leadership roles before, but when reports of bullying come out like this, it shows that they're clearly inexperienced or are out of their depth in these sort of roles. Because any proper leader who's good at their job would be able to manage their workforce without losing it every time they speak to their, their own employees. And personally, I, I think she, she had to go, but whether Boris Johnson thinks that or not, it's, it's up to him and I have no control over it. Um, but it's, it's, it's just not a great example for the rest of the public about how to, how to be a manager or even how workplaces should be managed. Yeah, I'd agree. I think there are there is the ministerial code and there are rules like this for a reason. And if you are then breaking those rules and if you have the prime minister of the country breaking those rules, there's no point in having them. I completely agree. It is a bad example for the rest of the country and it leads other staff um, under the ministers to just lose faith in the system and like lose faith in being able to complain and uh, sort of leads to a environment of no one being able to speak out against them, which I completely disagree with. Um, yeah, I also think she should go. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, Alex, you made a really good point there in, in terms of the Downing Street and the government uh, is, is still a workplace. Um, and if that was to occur in, in any other workplace around the country, then uh, Priti Patel, or, or sorry, the, the person who would have done it, would be uh, would be asked to think heavily about their actions or indeed if it was a serious case would be asked to resign from their post so um, I think that you know the government isn't above that I think the government should be treated like and, and Downing Street it should be treated like a workplace um, and uh, yeah although it is of course Boris Johnson's decision whether or not ministers should resign or not um, I think that uh, you know in this case as I said if this was to happen in any other situation I think there would be a resignation of some kind. Um, I mean, it does lead uh, people to, to go into speculation about why Boris Johnson did keep Pretty Patel on at the Home Office. And I think uh, Pretty Patel is very popular amongst conservative activists. Um, she was very big on the campaign trail. Uh, a lot of the kind of more right, right of the Conservative Party quite like her being in the Home Office. She's quite, um, she's got rules with quite an iron fist um, and she's quite authoritarian. Uh, which a lot of conservatives quite like someone like that in the Home Office. Um, and that's probably a reason why she was kept on, um, to be honest with, with that. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it's uh, a bad example to set for other workplaces around the country. Um, and it does just kind of spell more of the, um, the, the idea that Boris Johnson is kind of his own man. Uh, he doesn't have the tendency to listen to many other people who are around him. So, yeah, I think it's not a great, it wasn't a great day for the government, I don't think. I think speaking as Priti Patel, the woman in the cabinet as well, um, she has spoken to, you know, magazines and feminist papers and things like saying she's a feminist and she was talking about um, trying to reduce violence against women. And I think the juxtaposition between her being targeted for bullying people and not making people want to speak out, as you were saying that Fiona, like she's kind of making this environment where people might be scared to talk about their experiences being bullied in a workplace and then she's advocating for this other thing it doesn't work together and as a minority group in the cabinet already I think it's it, it's worrying that it might set a bad precedent especially in an already kind of um predominantly male white environment 
then this this kind of allegations and her behaviour, I I hope doesn't set back the progress being made in in government. And like people have said, this doesn't just reflect on Patel, but on Boris Johnson, because it's ult ultimately his decision. Uh, and I think he's he's risking losing a lot of credibility by making this decision. Um, he's coming across as a hypocrite because he did send out an email saying there's no place for bullying um, and that they need to create a, a relationship of mutual trust and respect between politicians and their officials. But then he's clearly making an exception for Patel, which seems to be a very political move because they have a very codependent political relationship. I thought it was quite timely as well. So wasn't it anti-bullying week last week in the UK for all schools? So, I mean, you've got all these primary school kids. I mean, some of them will be bullied, some of them will be bullies. And they, they look to the news, probably their parents are listening to it while they're in the cars and they hear one of the top people in the country is a bully. Uh, what are they meant to think of that? Imagine, imagine if you were one of the people getting bullied, you'd, you'd feel absolutely hopeless. Yeah, I think it does set a bad example for younger people as well. Um, leaving politics aside, just showing this kind of conduct when you are a public figure does not bode well for future generations. And this should not be someone who's setting an example or who has the potential of being a role model. I also, I don't know if anyone watched her apology video, but I found it very backhanded and insincere. She basically apologized if people were upset um, instead of apologizing for the actions themselves. And she did seem a bit smug and like she was repressing a smirk. So I don't know what else people thought of that. To me, that just sounds unprofessional. Like you need to acknowledge what you've done, take, you know, apologize properly. It's, it's unprofessional not to recognize your mistakes if you consider them that. I mean, this isn't even going to be the first condescending apology we're going to talk about this week. So. There's a, a lot, there's been a lot, there's been a lot. Well, yeah, and I guess having saying that, um, there's a lot of parallels between this and um, when there were calls for Cummings to resign or for him to be fired um, back in the heart of lockdown. And uh, like you say, his apology video with just the oddest excuse in the world, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of thought or care going into either of these really and it's again the same thing of Boris sort of bending the rules for his inner circle. I think it is jarring that we can draw comparisons between prominent political figures and I don't know YouTube influencers who have some sort of scandal surrounding them and they make a hollow half-hearted apology video. I think it's a bit surreal. Going on what Fiona said as well, uh, I was reading the, the Sunday Times this weekend and one of the journalists was clear about the government seeming like a democracy, you know, that everyone who knows Boris and people who know Boris get the best deal. But, you know, everyone else that doesn't know Boris and don't know his friends, well, they can get thrown to the bottom of the pile. They don't matter. It doesn't matter how you're treated, you know. And since someone was just talking about Cummings, it's interesting that he didn't resign when there was a scandal, but he's left now because of personal issues with Boris Johnson. So maybe that's what it'll take for Patel as well to finally reach that breaking point in their personal relationship instead of something problematic that she's done in her actual career. I feel like this is cancel culture though, because with Dominic Cummings, there was such a backlash online from people, like people named Biz after his mistakes and everything. There was just this huge uproar of people wanting him out basically. And I feel like that's happening again in this scenario. And it has to get to a point where there is really no coming back from it because you're just going to be disrespected by the general population. So you do need to go because that's 
you're that's where you've got yourself in this I think it's when we're talking about like data and like social media online it's this fueling of everybody's anger coming together on like Twitter and it just creates this culture of kind of outing people for their mistakes and I think in politics especially it's always trending on Twitter the the latest scandal especially in Downing Street so with Cummings and now Patel I think it's there is this kind of volcano of like everyone it's just erupted basically and her mistakes are really being shown online but how do people feel about cancel culture because I agree that sometimes it's blown out of proportion and there are certain uh celebrity figures who don't necessarily deserve their personal lives to be showcased like that but I think political figures do owe some kind of they they have an obligation to their citizens um to their constituents and I think workplace bullying is one thing that should be highlighted um so that people can learn from it and know that it's not something that should be emulated yeah I agree I mean um our, our taxpayers money goes towards them that makes sense you know they are accountable to us because not only through the ballot box but they are accountable to us from uh you know as, as I said we we do pay their pay their um their wages so I think it's only right that we should hold them to account for their actions exactly and I think that's why there has been increasing uh mistrust towards the government is if they can't even be held accountable by us or by each other then who's setting a national standard I think that leads on to our next story in UK politics, which is Luke on Nigel Farage's current <laughs> affairs. Yeah, um, so Nigel Farage, the, the leader of the Brexit Party, has made clear that his party is trying to change its name uh, from the Brexit Party to Reform UK. The Brexiteer has stated that he wants to alter his party's focus away from Brexit and towards fighting against UK lockdowns. He believes that the lockdowns haven't aided us in fighting the virus and and is actually doing damage, huge damage to local businesses around the country. Another area in which Farage hopes to focus his new party on is uh, constitutional reform. He would like reforms to be made to aspects of UK governments, as he says, such as the BBC and the House of Lords. Despite this, his attempt has been seen by many as a continuation of single issue politics. An analysis by YouGov has cast doubt on the appeal of the rebranded party, stating that the overlap of voters with a positive opinion of Nigel Farage and those with a negative opinion of COVID lockdowns was actually very small, an estimated of 7% of the electorate would agree with him on this issue. To make things worse for Nigel Farage, similar to what happened last year with Change UK, which was a party, a splinter group from the Labour Party, the charity Reform, uh, which holds the domain name reform.uk, has complained to the Electoral Commission, claiming it risks damaging its goodwill through name confusion. But what is clear is that Nigel Farage is still very keen to display himself as the voice of ordinary people, like he did throughout the whole Brexit in Broglio. Whether or not he's able to do the same with COVID lockdowns, although is yet to be seen. So my first question would be, how do we see Farage's anti-lockdown campaigns doing, especially amongst students? Well, this is, I think, the odd thing about this is that most, uh, most people that I thought would have been um, anti-lockdown would have been younger or not necessarily anti it but it would benefit them more um, but obviously previously as we've seen with Brexit most of the other things they've done in the last few years politically have been more aimed at um, like the older segment of society but um, it'd be interesting to see what he does with it but I'd, it makes a lot of sense that um, there's not a lot of overlapping between 
uh, his current followers and the people this is targeted at. But I think in the week there was something he was saying about refunding students at the moment as well. So he is clearly trying to go for um, trying to get some more support among students. I think what we see with Nigel Farage, which is what Luke was saying as well, is that he is very much a single issue politician. So he always finds the demographic on which he can capitalize people who are experiencing grievances. And currently that's largely students. And I'm sure he's picked up on the fact that there are all these uh, student protest movements going on. Um, he did the exact same thing with Brexit, just picking up on what group can easily be radicalized or incentivized um, by creating a single issue party. Yeah, it's, his whole message every time he campaigns is it's us against the state. It's the state we shouldn't trust. Um, I think this also has led to a lot of people not trusting the current vaccines coming out as well. It's that whole don't trust what's ever said by authorities. Uh, there's, there's some reason to not trust because you, you should always see it for yourself and hear it for yourself. But you can tell, as Rebecca just said, that he is trying to radicalise the student sect. He, he really wants them on his side because Brexit is gone. He, he's basically won Brexit. Uh, he, he, might, he might get his way, but he just needs new supporters now because he's got nothing to do. Probably a bit bored. He hasn't even got a pub to go and drink a pint in. So. Yeah, I can see that he's trying to do this, but I just can't see it working among students. I think so many people our age are still angry about uh, Brexit coming through. And um, although there have been some protests in London and Manchester against lockdowns, I think a lot of the student ones have been very um, specific and very aware of making sure that they aren't anti-lockdown protests, they're protests to gain more support during the lockdown. Yeah, I would say, um, it, I mean, Rebecca, you mentioned there is it is Nigel Farage's speciality is campaigning on single issue um, things. Uh, and no one can deny that, uh, although, you know, many people may not be a fan of Nigel Farage, he is extremely effective in being able to do that. Um, Brexit, I mean, he almost engineered Brexit by himself, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, although do we think that this is a, a bridge too far for Nigel Farage? I think he's, he's fighting. Uh, he, he's not going to win this battle. What do we think? I feel like Nigel Farage became almost like a laughingstock among students. You know, people spread images about him looking stupid online. Um, and there is this big culture where people, like students especially, you know, you'll see in clubs, people sing Jeremy Corbyn to Seven Asian Army instead, but might even not know which party he's in or support him. And I feel like there is this culture on students to maybe personalise these politicians and make them funny, you know, have this kind of, you know, we see Boris, the picture of Boris you see is when he's on a tightrope, you know, in, in the Union Jack flag. Um, I feel like there's this humour around politicians and if he's supporting what the occupiers of the tower at the moment are wanting, like a 30% um, uh, return of fees, then is this going to, it's a really good tactic because he's, he's linking with the students, he's already kind of got that um, impression of being quite stupid amongst poli politics in a way. Um, I think he could easily kind of get students on board, which is kind of scary. The other question I have really is um, about single issue politics. And we saw in 2019 in the election that um, the Conservative Party almost became quite a single issue party uh, with Brexit being their kind of uh, flag bearer. Um, and then with the Labour Party, uh, there was a lot of talk about um, tuition fees, especially amongst the student population. That was a big 
single issue thing that Jeremy Corbyn focused on. So um, firstly, I mean, do we see uh, single issue politics being the new norm in today's society? And if it is, uh, what does it what do you think it means for um, for politics uh, nowadays? I think there's an argument there's just been a shift away from single issue politics with Joe Biden winning, you know, with everyone choosing a path away from single choice politics, whether whether they wanted to or not, it was just a route of escape. Um, now, how it goes in this country after all this this year, I, I don't know. I can't predict it. I just know that people seem to care about single issues a lot more and they're a lot more vociferous about their complaints. And it, it could it could become a big thing here. But I really, I really can't predict that. I think single issue politics are popular in voluntary voting systems because they do tend to attract committed voters um, who will then reliably vote. So I think uh, politicians play on that and know that they'll be able to get a loyal uh, following. Our next story is on the racial profiling incident at the University of Manchester. Uh, Alex, if you'd like to talk us through that. Sure. So this next story links to a lot of these last stories, and it's a story about mistrust. So it was about a racial profiling incident that happened on Friday, the 13th of November, uh, which is now just over a week ago. It was, I'll just talk a little bit about the incident before I talk about the protest. It happened, it occurred when Zach Adan was walking into the Fallowfield campus um, and he was believed to have covered his face uh, according to the security guards when he showed his ID. So what the security guards did next was follow him and then pin him up against a wall for no reason, uh, apart from wanting to know who they were, who he was. Uh, in, res in response, Zach asked, why is this happening? Uh, what do you want from me? And they, they said, we just need to see your ID. You look like a bit of a drug dealer. Uh, I think this this sums up the whole the whole incident because it's a blatant example of racial profiling, uh, and also it just doesn't. Zach Zach has even said himself to many different news organisations that he, he loves the city, but this is a, a classic example of when he's felt excluded by just a few individuals. Subsequently, there was quite a few protests. There was a protest on the Sunday night and then the Monday night. Uh, the Monday night was attended by uh, almost the majority of Fallowfield campus uh, to show their support against racial profiling. Uh, at the protest, I gathered a few interviews. The first one was with um, Olivia. Okay, Fuse FM News and Focus currently walking around the campus. I currently have Olivia, Olivia with me. Uh, Olivia, how has yesterday's events affected you? It just makes you worry to be a black person on this campus. It's completely unfair. I don't understand how such a simple situation could have escalated in such an ugly way. And let's be real, we all know this happened to ZK because he's a young black man on campus. If he was, if he was with a group of white people, why is he the only one that got singled out? And they're accusing him of being a drug dealer, essentially. Why? Because he's a young black man dressed in a certain way. And that's a stereotype that they've put on. It's a complete, it's not even a microaggression. It's absolute prejudice. I don't understand how this can happen in 2020. I don't have to understand how this can happen in Manchester, which sees itself as a progressive city as of diversity. It's absolutely unacceptable. And it makes me ashamed to be a black person on this campus. Okay. Is this the first example of prejudice you've experienced from the security guards? I personally have never experienced prejudice from the security guards, but that's because I just, you know, I mean, when as a black person, you just kind of like, 
you feel nervous around them like you just want to get get it done with them show them your id cards otherwise you don't know how they're gonna fucking act you don't know how um you don't know how um you know scared black people are of the police in, I'm from London, like, terrified of mm-hmm. them. After everything with the George Floyd stuff in America, you just want to watch yourself with them. So, honestly, I normally just don't even try and start a fight with them. But at the end of the day, Zika didn't even try and start a fight. He just wanted to know why they were questioning him. And if that's what happened, that's completely unacceptable. So I've never been through anything like that. But the fact is, this is the first time it's been filmed. And everyone says, racism isn't getting worse. It's just starting to get filmed now. And that's why everyone knows about this. This has been going on for a long time. And I'm telling you, other students here, I probably had just the same experience with the security guards, maybe even more. Perfect, thank you very much. Thank you. The second interview was with Nathaniel. Hello, I'm currently with... Nathaniel. Nathaniel, how has yesterday's events affected you? It affected me greatly because when I saw them, I thought that could really just be me. And I questioned why it was only one particular person stopped. And then it made me think of like how much we're paying and how much we're not getting in return. You would think with how much we're paying, the security would be able to properly train security. The uni would be able to properly train security to have proper de-escalation tactics. But no, they resorted to violence. If somebody is not giving you their card, and he was very well happy to comply, you can ask nicely or you can just continue to persevere. You don't need to drag someone up on the wall and then try and take it from them by force. And then the security's own comments were just not appropriate. I don't know why people think there's a race car that we walk around, that we're happy to just pull it out whenever life gets difficult. But no, I don't want to have that. That's basically just my feelings on the matter, that the university can do better to make sure that security are appropriately trained so that they can use the proper psychological tactics and physical restraint to not let things get to how they've gotten, like today. That's what I think, personally. Sure. And do you feel scared walking around now on campus? I wouldn't say I feel scared, but I would say I'm in a limbo that I don't feel safe. Like, because the people who are meant to protect me have done that now. So how am I supposed to feel safe when the people who are, like, hired to keep us safe are doing that to our our own students that live in this very campus? Perfect. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. I think the main thing we can gather from these interviews is that before this incident, people felt safe especially black people, they felt safe on the Fallowfield campus, they felt welcome. But now this incident has happened, they don't know whether they can trust the people that are meant to be guarding their own homes and their own, you know, their own lives. Especially when an incident like this happens where someone is intimidated to the extent that they were, it does question, it does bring the, the question forward um, whether everyone else would be feel safe walking on campus as well. That's just an open question for all of you guys as well. I would say that, um, I mean, in response to the story, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure like everyone else, it was very distressing to see someone um, being stopped uh, like the way that he was, um, where there's no evidence presented to, to show that he was a drug dealer. Um, and it was, yeah, as you said, just, just blatant racial profiling. Um, I mean, I think we have to put this in context of what's happening across the university at the moment Um, and I think this is just another example really of how students are feeling extremely distressed and annoyed uh, at the university for mishandling of numerous things now. Uh, It does seem like to me and I'm sure to many people that it's not a a week doesn't go by without the University of Manchester appearing in BBC News um, which is very very frustrating and annoying um, especially, uh, you know, as the University of Manchester is such a great institution for education, um, but it's really being let down by its moral standards. Um, the second thing I would say is 
you know, a lot of, uh, I, I'm sure like everyone else, the, the everything that happened over lockdown with George Floyd and Black and the Black Lives Matter campaign, it was such an eye opener for not only myself, but lots and lots of people about how we, um, how we, how we speak and how we act about, um, about incidences of, of racial prejudice um, and things like that. Uh, and it does really kind of show to, to myself and, and I'm sure other people as well that the university really hasn't learned very much from what's happened uh, in America. Uh, and that's very, very distressing in itself. Um, you know, the, the huge, huge campaign that was undertaken over summer inspired so many people and made everybody think twice about what we did and what we said. Um, and for an institution like University of Manchester not to really kind of pick up anything from that is... I, I just don't really understand it personally. It should be said, since this incident, the university has subsequently um, put the security guards that were involved uh, in suspension, so they're, they're not working at the moment. Um, and they have sent a lot of emails in correspondence. I don't know if it's to second and third years as well, but I have received a lot of emails about you know social inclusion and anti-discrimination at the university. My next question would be, what would be the next steps for the vice president, uh, the vice chancellor, sorry, uh, to get the students back on side? Because she's gained a lot of hate for for these last few weeks. It's, it's been terrible for the reputation of the university, as Luke said. So I was just wondering what everyone else thinks on that. I think it's difficult for her to save her reputation at this point, And a lot of people are calling for her resignation. So I personally believe that she should resign. And if she doesn't, the least she can do is to meet with Zakadan um, and formally apologize because he has specifically requested that. And not only did she lie on national television for saying that she had written him an apology letter, which it turns out she hadn't, um, but she also said she wouldn't meet with him because it would interfere with the investigation, which just makes you think, you know, what do you hope to gain from the investigation when there's clear video of what happened? This isn't an alleged racial profiling incident we all we've all seen the footage we know what happened it's horrifying and the student is traumatized and Nancy Rothwell has not sufficiently apologized for it and essentially gaslit him by lying um, to the nation about her apology yeah I think the the thing that struck me about that interview was how arrogant she was about the whole situation and how condescending she was towards students it's like she expected none of us to watch Newsnight or none of us to read the news. Um, so for that reason, I think she's inept at a job and I also think she should go. I think there was a huge lack of compassion and humanity in what she was saying on Newsnight. I mean, it, it's an instinct. You apologise, you're head of this institution and something like this happens, you apologise. And if that doesn't happen, she needs to go because it's it's a community. Fallowfield Campus is a community of people that need to be together and to have even not be able to trust security guards that are there to protect your safety is a part it's, it's awful and to feel unsafe where you're living again is horrible with the fences situation when she spoke uh, to the Manc Union she didn't actually know who had administered to put the fences up she didn't say sorry she didn't say sorry for the racial profiling incident she there's just a lack of communication with her to the university we saw on uni place projections saying Nancy out you know, the students are not happy and they're disillusioned with the head of the uni. That's that's not right. And if her not saying sorry, I was so angry at her Newsnight interview. I just, it was really unwatchable to see someone, as I said, being just arrogant and just, there was just no compassion there at all. 
I'd completely agree. I think a lack of compassion sums it up perfectly. Um, I think from start to end, she's been very heavy handed with all of the first years. Um, she just doesn't seem to understand exactly what you've said, that it's a community, it's a society, these people need to be together. And even that whole um, night during the protest, I think reflected it all. Um, I believe there was eight riot vans that were brought to campus, uh, multiple other police cars. There must have been, I think, 30, 40 policemen there just like trying to get students off. And there were barely any students protesting. I think this heavy handedness just shows exactly where her priorities are and it just isn't with students. Yeah, I would concur with uh, everything that everyone said. Um, and I would just very briefly add that it'd be a massive shock to me if she's not even considering her resignation. I think uh, it'd be a very big shock if she's not even considering it. I, I expect that she is. Uh, I hope that she is considering it because um, especially about regarding everyone else's feelings towards her. Um, and yeah, just what ha what's happened to the university in the last month uh, alone. I think it'd be very, very strange if she wasn't considering it. But I don't think resignation should be her get out of jail free card. She can't just walk away from the situation. She's left such a toxic environment. You see the reputation left on every news website and she can't just walk away. She needs to address all of these issues, say sorry, make amends with the rent strikes, with the fences catastrophe, with the racial profiling, with people occupying. She can't just walk away and leave that. It needs to be addressed first and then she needs to go, I think. Yeah, I feel the only way she's going to end up with any dignity from all this is she spoke to the students directly. Time and time again, she spoke to the news and not the students. So I think next time she addresses the public, it should be to us first and then to the news. Yeah, I mean, as vice chancellor, she should be representing the student body and she should be reporting to us, uh, not just us, but also her staff. And we've seen what with the strikes and everything last year that they don't feel uh, supported by Nancy Rothwell either. Um, and we did see, I think, some lecturers support the tower uh, occupiers last week. So at least there's a student and academic um, solidarity, but the solidarity happens to be against Nancy Rothwell because she is not supporting the university. I think one good thing that's come from this story, though, is um, if anybody feels like they have been racially profiled or whether there is some racial injustice, it's totally OK to speak out about it. You know, it's Zach has gained a lot of attention from it and rightful attention, too. And he's he's almost portrayed as somewhat of a hero for the for the students in Fallowfield now for speaking up against against the big bad boss. So, yeah, I think that's one good thing we can take home from it. Yeah, and also that, you know, even if we're not being supported by Nancy or some of the higher ups, we do have each other as a student community. And what with all the activism and everything going on and you see supportive, uh, optimi optimistic posts on Manchester Students Group and U of M Love on Facebook, there is a big sense of community. And I'm proud of the students for showing that level of uh, commitment to each other. So this ties in with uh, students' well-being. Madeline will be talking about um, a university Instagram account aiming to support student welfare. Yeah, so on the 13th of November, Uni of Manchester Wellbeing posted a picture on their Instagram account for World Kindness Day. Uh, the post featured um, the picture of a rainbow with the caption, even though I can't physically be there, I'm still here. 
The post comment section was then flooded with students from the university criticising the hypocrisy of the post. So the comments ranged from um, criticising the treatment of the tower occupiers and questioning why the hot water and Wi-Fi was turned off in the OP tower, uh, where the mental health support is for university students and criticising the university's focus on profits over student welfare. Um, and one commenter even said that after considering Uni of Manchester for their masters, they will be going nowhere near the university. So later on that day, uh, the Wellbeing Instagram responded with a second post that read, we hear you, in which they explained that although they are not the route in which to voice the concerns, they will aim to listen and amplify students' voices the best way they can. So I think the general issue surrounding um, the Wellbeing Instagram post is that it was really poorly timed, um, seen as it was during a time with the fences, with the um, racial profiling incident. Um, um, it was clear from the comments that students don't really feel like the support is there from them at all and that they are not being heard by the university either. And um, the fact that a potential student was turned off from even attending the university just shows how much this bad press um, will affect the university's reputation going forward. It is almost impressive, isn't it, how wrong they seem to get it again and again. That is, uh, I mean, it's just funny, isn't it? That I mean, it's awful, but how on earth, it's, it's the exact same with the fences, who on earth is making these decisions and thinks that that's the right timing and the right thing to do? Um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't say I disagree with the commenters. Um, the one thing I would say, though, which I've been I was speaking to a friend of mine recently who was thinking about coming to Manchester and um, people turned away uh, by the last few months. Um, I personally don't think it should turn people away from the university. I think um, if anything, it shows the strength of the student community here. And I think it's. Uh, the biggest uni in England, I think, uh, the biggest uni community. It just shows, um, yeah, that's, I just think it just really shows the strength of the students and that they will come together and they will fight the uni on these things. I think we've seen other move movements from other universities, but it just hasn't been as strong. I think we've very much been the centre of it. And like you've said with the last story, I'm proud of that as well. No, I personally don't think anybody should be uh, turned away as uh, Fiona just said, if you're going to go anywhere and you feel afraid of being um, almost bullied by a university and treated badly, Manchester's, it might happen, you might get treated badly, but at least the students will stand up to it. So at least you've got everyone else by your side to, do, you know, criticise um, the decisions being made. So I, I think there's some, something, if people are thinking about coming still, uh, do still come because most people are like-minded. Most people want to complain about how crap stuff is. Yeah, I think we can all agree that the post itself was very tone deaf, but also almost like comedic timing. <laughs> that just goes to show how unaware they are of students' thoughts, regardless of how loud we are, how obvious it is, the fact that national media outlets are reporting on it and the university just kind of seems to be fully oblivious to it. Um, but yeah, I agree with everything Fiona said about the student body's re resilience and the fact that we do stand up for ourselves and for each other. And I think it has been really amazing. Um, 
and we have the university has been getting a lot of bad press and it's true that you know you look at the guardian the bbc and it almost feels like the university of manchester is the only university in the uk because there's all this coverage surrounding it and yes it's negative but it also goes to show how strong the student community is i think another point to make is they keep doing these punchlines at the right time because they have such a lack of they've got no empathy for the students they don't know how we're feeling uh, and for leaders uh, time and time again for, for, i say this for leaders to be in charge that don't know how people are feeling it's, it's not right and it, it has got to change um, and hopefully uh, with one more joke by the uni stuff might change uh, so almost two weeks ago, a group of students began occupying Owens Park Tower, protesting against the treatment of students during the semester. The occupiers are a mix of students from the 9K for What and URM Rent Strike organisations. URM Rent Strike are representing over 200 residents of the Uni of Manchester halls of residence that are currently on rent strike. Recently, they have been trying to build the momentum of the strike through student representatives and by, and by projecting messages onto the university place, reading, we are waiting, Nancy, stand up to the University of Moneychester and join the January rent strike. The occupation was meant to be announced at the Safer protest a couple of weeks ago, but it had to be announced earlier that day due to threats of arrests and fining from the police for all those who would attend the protest. The university signed a deal last Wednesday, allegedly without contacting the occupiers or the rent strikers, which includes a two week reduction of rates and the possibility to return home, breaking the accommodation agreement, but with no guaranteed accommodation if they chose to return. Uh, I spoke to one of the occupiers last Wednesday who had this to say about the occupation and the university's response. Um, could you outline your demands for the university for us? Um, yeah. So the demands for the rent strike are 40% rent reduction um, for people to be able to return home, um, like having a guarantee of accommodation if they decide to come back, if in-person teaching starts again, um, and for better living conditions. So for like an end to break-ins in Whitworth Park, for maintenance to actually deal with the problems and, and end pest infestations and um, better mental health support as well. So that's one of the things that comes under best living conditions. Um, but the demands of the occupation are for them to meet with us to discuss those requests because we've had to escalate to occupation um, because they've just refused to acknowledge um, that we represent the student body um, when, with these demands. Um, and for no staff to be laid off yeah. for the duration of the pandemic. Yeah, okay. And has any of this changed in light of the um, deal between the SU and the university that's been announced yesterday? Um, no. So basically yesterday they offered us, they worded it very cleverly, they said like 20% of the remaining term of rent off, which mm -hmm. translates to 5% of the total year, and we're asking for 40% of the total year, um, and 5% is how much they increased the rent from last year. So last year people were getting, for the same price they're offering us now, um, people were getting you know, all of these communal spaces that they could use as well. Um, and we're getting in-person teaching, so they actually needed to be on campus in their rooms. Whereas we've been lied to and brought to campus and we don't actually need to be here and we're not even allowed to use all the communal spaces because of COVID regulations. Um, and they're only now offering to charge the same amount as last year. So it's an insult, really. It's not a deal that we're in any way considering yeah. accepting. So you were fully planning on carrying on with the rent strike and the occupation? Um even having like even this deal having been signed 
Yeah, definitely. So the main form of escalation we're looking at right now is launching the January rent strike. We already have a few hundred people signed up, but we're going to leaflet the whole campus um, and try and get, you know, a thousand or more signed up to the rent strike in January because they have to listen to that. Amazing. Yeah. And so the university haven't tried to contact you at all since you've been in the, since you've been occupying Owens Park Tower? No, um, apart from turning our Wi-Fi off. <laughs> yeah, right. On. And do you, would you have a message for the university or anything you'd like to say to them? Um, I think Nancy's made it very clear she doesn't want to meet with us because she doesn't want to listen to our demands, reasonable though they are. So we have the support of the staff. Um, so I think just, just meet our demands because... You know, we're only asking to be treated like people or even to be treated like the paying customers that we are. The university has since uh, acted upon their promises by launching a 24-hour mental health helpline and app. However, the organisation's UOM rent strike and 9K for what, as well as Safer, insist that it still isn't good enough and are pushing for further changes, with the occupiers appearing on BBC Newsline alongside an interview carried out with Nancy Rothwell. Um, so what do you guys think about these students occupying Owens Park Tower? Do you think it's an efficient way of protesting? I think it's completely efficient because at the start of the UOM rent strike, I was slightly wondering what the purpose of the strike was because we were all using the facilities still. Um, but since they've got all this attention, it's made me realise that it's another way to get money back from the tuition fees that we'd never get back. Because I think that's the main bit where students are losing money this year. You know, with hardly any of the buildings being used for electricity and them still charging full whack for everything. I think they're, yeah, they're, they were very, these campaigners were very clever in where they decided to attack the university. So yeah, good strike. I have to be honest, I was a bit skeptical about the occupation at first, especially because I believe uh, the tower isn't being used this year. But it has proven to be successful in the sense that it's getting a lot of media coverage, which was obviously one of the main incentives, uh, you know, to kind of publicly uh, condemn Nancy Rothwell and the university's approach to uh, accommodation rent. So hopefully this will turn out for the better. And I think their main demand is to, to you know, gain an audience with Nancy Rothwell. So hopefully with all the backlash she's been receiving, she will agree to that and at least tune into a Zoom conference with the occupiers. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of confusion around the choice of Owens Park Tower as the location of uh, their occupation. Um, Obviously, during lockdown, they can't go into a building that is like occupied by other people. Um, and I think the the tower does have quite a um, significant history, which makes it quite a good location. I think um, it hasn't had anyone in it this year due to alleged structural problems. Um, I believe there's talk of it having the same cladding as Grenfell in it, and also potential asbestos in the uh, in the building. Um, but having said this, I believe these, uh, this was found out a few years ago. They've still had students in it last year, um, despite it being unsafe. And I believe the original plans to take it down were in 2001. So it has been 20 years now. They've been almost 20 years that they've been, um, keeping students in an unsafe building. 
So I think on one way that could really represent what they are um, protesting about the poor conditions of the halls of residence. What do you guys think about that? I think linking to the poor conditions, obviously in halls, but also the occupiers have had. So um, I think it's worth mentioning that the same security guard involved in the racial profiling incident we spoke about earlier was the same security guard who actually knocked uh, boxes of pizza out from going into the occupiers to feed them. Um, so there's obviously some negative uh, and that negative attitude towards this one security guard. But um, I think uh, I was talking to Lucy, who's one of the occupiers, and she was like, there's no respect for their picket line. So security guards are just freely walking in. People are just entering the building. And if it was in a different country, like I think France is a big taboo around breaking the picket line. Whereas for them, there's been no respect to their to their, their occupation, really, from authorities and security people. It's just kind of been pushed aside, I think, and not really taken as a massive protest. For me, as a first year student, I thought it was legendary. As soon as I arrived on campus, I just looked at that tower and I really wanted to get to the top of it. I don't know how they got in, but I I respect them so much that they, they must get the best views in Manchester and they also get their campaign heard by the rest of the country. So big respect. Yeah, I imagine they'd probably like to add that they didn't just do it for the clout. <laughs> they've been in there for a while now. I think it's about 11, 12 days. Um, I think they've been offered 30% back just today and they've refused it. Um, for the, that was only for the first semester. Um, so they've refused that. I think they're just waiting on, they want Nancy to talk to them. Um, and I know there was some confusion because in the last occupation that was done at the University of Manchester, they had a students union representative there who was able to communicate between like heads of the university. But in this occupation, they don't have someone there. So they've had to look at student representatives who can help them. But I think there's just been that, uh, there's been a missed bridge between getting from the occupiers to the university. Um, which I think may have slowed the process down a little. But to be honest, with all the press Nancy's been given, it shouldn't have had to have taken one representative from the Students' Union to help them get what they, their demands, because it's, they're getting so much bad press. You know, the last occupation that was done at University of Manchester did not make national news, whereas this one has. So I think that kind of sets the precedent that she needs to get involved. I mean, what was striking as well was the, the first offer of 5% back on year. Uh, accommodation costs was simply pitiful. Considering that where most first year students are, and most students are being told slash advised to go home two weeks early before Christmas anyway. So we wouldn't have even used the buildings at the time. So they would have, they would have given us money that we rightfully owed anyway. So hearing that there's a 30% offer uh, is encouraging. Uh, what were they standing for? 40%. Yeah, so knowing that they they still want their 40%, I think is a good target to go for um, and hopefully they get it. But as uh, both of you just alluded to, they, they definitely do need that link though between the university and, and the actual movement to make sure talks happen quicker and they can sleep normally again. Yeah, I did see that they were just kind of sleeping in the unoccupied rooms of um, the tower, like with having a really nice like bed sheets or anything. I was like, oh no. Um, but they've been sent so much food. And I think they've even said that the food they don't eat, they'll give back to the food bank. Um, I think they're really a really proactive group of people in the tower at the moment, really like uh, conscious about um, the environment. They're conscious about their movements in the tower. They're conscious about a lot of things. And they just kind of want to be there for students. You know, they've been making TikTok um, videos 
just trying to engage students, not just at Manchester, but everywhere, because they've, they've just gained a lot of traction recently, which is really inspiring. And I, I yeah, I think they're going to get a lot of praise when they do finally get to leave um, and kind of see, seen as people going the extra mile to kind of get stuff done. Yeah, I believe they've already donated two bags full of food, I think, to food banks. Um, and they're getting more all the time. So I think they can last out quite a while. Um, on Talking about the TikTok no, I've never really been a fan, but I've been quite impressed by how well it's actually spread their message in Tower. I thought it's actually a really good method of doing it. And I think, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's just because of the TikTok, but I believe they'd be making connections with a lot of other universities, um, especially Rent Strike, and trying to set up like a nationwide sort of um, basis for halls of residence students to start rent striking. It was my friend in York University who sent me one of the TikToks. So if there, the people there are seeing them, I think that will help with other people wanting to do the same sort of protest. Manchester's kind of setting this kind of, you students can protest what they want, especially in these sort of circumstances. So yeah, I think I think it's it's worthwhile. I know TikToks maybe be used for other things, but I think for student protests, it's definitely a good platform to use. Yeah, it makes a nice contrast to seeing TikTok dancers all the time. Yeah, I think TikTok has been the social media platform of 2020. Um, and I think a lot of people from our generation were a bit hesitant to download it because it was marketed more towards younger Gen Zers. And then I think in the first lockdown, a lot of us caved, downloaded it. <laughs> now we have very specifically tailored algorithms catered to us. And I'm guessing a lot of students are seeing this kind of uh, student activism on their feeds. Yeah, I'm like Alex on this. I've stayed out of the uh, TikTok uh, drama. Maybe this lockdown will convince you otherwise. TikTok yeah. users are for the week. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't call me out like this. <laughs> Does that lead us nicely onto our story about Pope Francis, Luke? So there's been a, a new story this week, or I think it might have been last week actually, where um, Pope Francis's official Instagram um, was caught liking a Brazilian model's photo. Uh, I think it was a bikini photo as well to make it even worse for the Pope. Um, the Vatican have said that uh, it's not, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't the actual Pope that did it himself. It was one of his um, social media team, I think. Uh, but it has been treated as quite a serious investigation um, in the Vatican at the moment. Uh, and all, all parts of the, uh, the, the household are trying to work out who's responsible, uh, how this was able to happen. Um, the actual woman herself was actually a Catholic as well. And she, um, she reacted to it by saying, um, I guess this means I'm going to heaven, um, which was quite funny, I thought. Um, so uh, yeah, I think she was quite flattered by the, uh, by the like from Pope Francis. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely gonna be an investigation of some kind to work out what exactly happened. But yeah, it's a bit of light lighthearted news. I mean, I have to assume that he has a team running his social media because I'm struggling to imagine the Pope in his choir dress uh, scrolling through Instagram, you know, following models, I guess, well, assuming they're all Catholic models. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, well, I know that the Pope is, has made himself a bit of a modernizer in recent times in terms of the, uh, the Vatican. Uh, I don't know if his, his idea of modernization was going this far. Uh, but um, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a very, very weird one. Um, it's also quite weird. I mean, I don't know how, like, I think this, this person who was, this model was just like a, I don't know if she was hugely famous. She might be, I don't know if she is, 
but I mean I don't know if he was following her or like I don't know what happened I, I don't know it's a weird one does anyone else have any ideas of who might be responsible for this and how this was able to happen yeah I think the Vatican needs to fire their social media interns so we'll see who takes the blame for this one I think it was Nancy Rothwell again I mean she's had a great week <laughs> oh, you can just blame Nancy seems to be a bit of a scapegoat <laughs> thank you for tuning in and a special shout out to Johnny Hunt for producing the show that's it for now you're in focus Thank you.